0: Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment law matters. I'm Glenn Hayes, National Head of Employment Law at Erwin Mitchell.
1: And I'm Joe Mosley. I'm a support lawyer here and I write our blogs and help to keep our clients up to date on the law.
0: Happy New Year, Joe.
1: Happy New Year to you, Glenn.
0: And to all of our listeners. So what are we going to start the year talking about?
1: I thought that we'd start the year by going back to basics and discuss investigations and in particular where clients sometimes go wrong. And I thought it would be helpful to discuss the principles around carrying out investigations and explain exactly what employers are expected to do the standard of proof they have to meet and how they establish facts, particularly in situations where it's one person's word against another. But before we start, I wanted to give you some feedback from one of our listeners. They really liked the quiz that I posed when we talked about flexible working last time. So if we have time, I might be putting you on the spot again.
0: Oh, great! Well, I got you <laughs> wrong last time, so it's not not ideal, is it? Uh, but well, yeah, we can okay, o- we'll only
1: get better then. Hey.
0: Right. Well, we'll give it a go. Over to you.
1: Okay, so can we start by focusing on the investigations employers have to undertake where they suspect someone of misconduct, so perhaps stealing from the till, or where another employee has raised a grievance? We've sort of found that one of the issues that often worries employers is who should they get to carry out the investigation? For example, do they need to engage someone outside of their organisation when they're investigating a particular complaint?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, Joe. So, Well, the starting point really is that there's no requirement to engage somebody outside the organisation, for example. But sometimes it is preferable to do that. So quite often we work with clients whereby, for example, we might do a grievance script for them or a disciplinary script for them. And then they then ask the questions as part of that investigation meeting, for example. Other times we might uh, work with some HR consultants that we use, for example, we might Push somebody in on the ground in order to do that. It really depends on a number of factors, really. One is the seriousness of the investigation, I suppose, could come into play. You might need somebody to react very quickly on their feet. And whilst we can't think about each and every question, we might, you know, we might be able to do one of those scripts where it says, you know, if the answer is yes, then ask this. If the answer is no, then ask that. But obviously, a seasoned HR pro on the ground might be quite useful in that respect. It might be that it adds a a layer of impartiality to the process that might otherwise be be questionable mm. um particularly for senior people whereby um, it might place a junior individual in a, in a fairly difficult position if they're investigating somebody who's very senior to them for example so there might be a variety of different reasons to do that and the same really for the disciplinary hearing albeit normally it's the investigation stage that's that's outsourced if you like for want of a better phrase rather than the disciplinary itself albeit that can, that can happen as well
1: so an investigator's job is to go through the allegations to determine what exactly has happened. And we know that our employers often want certainty before they feel they can establish a fact. Can you explain what the standard of proof is in these circumstances?
0: Yeah, so it's a, a balance of probabilities test, really. What does that mean? Well, like a better way to put it really is what is more likely than not to have happened. So the investigator's job really is to establish facts it's very different to a to a sort of criminal standard of proof which is the beyond reasonable doubt type scenario so mm. you know it, it it may be appropriate in these situations for the investigator to, to reach a conclusion that a fact hasn't been established for example yeah. and but what what tribunals really expect an employer to have done is to conduct a reasonable investigation and reach a reasonable decision on the facts so that's what the test essentially is in unfair dismissal case i've, I've simplified it a, a little bit but the job of the investigator really is to go out and decide those facts. It's he, he or she's job, though, is not to decide what happens to the employee. Albeit that's generally a follow-on from that. You know, it may be that the investigator a conclusion that somebody else then agrees with, for example. Mm. But it, it's the next stage in the disciplinary process, where, for example, the the sanction, if you like, is decided uh, for that employee, not at not at the investigation stage. Quite often, you'll find an investigator that makes a recommendation. Okay, and there's I think I think there's some uh, benefits to that sometimes, and um, but equally I think that that sort of has to be judged on on the particular circumstances of the case as to whether it's necessary or indeed desirable to do that.
1: When you say a recommendation, do you mean a recommendation as to what should happen to the employee?
0: Well, oh yeah. So sometimes it will be a recommendation that the matter proceeds to a disciplinary hearing. Okay. okay. Sometimes the recommendation will go further than that and say my recommendation that it goes to a disciplinary hearing and, for example, considers whether the employment should be terminated on the grounds of gross misconduct. Right.
1: OK, thank you. So let's get to the nitty gritty then. How does an investigator go about establishing what actually happened where you've got one person's word against another? And I suppose we sort of see those scenarios play out more in harassment type claims.
0: Yeah. I mean, in short, it's very difficult because um you you've got to look at what one person is is saying and what the other person is saying but but realistically you've got to look at corroborative evidence you know for example if you've got a harassment type situation and somebody says um, you know he made a suggestive remark to me and the the individual denies it for example is there any corroborative evidence around that so you know, is there some examples of some phone calls to the individual if they're deemed to be if if the allegation is that they're harassing them is there persistent messages you know did they tell anybody at the time so is there a whatsapp message to a friend or to a colleague or to you know so you've got to look at what other evidence there is there to try and reach a conclusion as to whether that fact is more likely to be established or, or whether it's happened or not realistically and sometimes that's obvious you know so you can you might have other people who are alleged to have witnessed it sometimes it's less so you might have to look at other more sort of discrete types of evidence really to decide whether or not it's likely to have happened or not
1: yeah and do you sort of see this sort of conflict often with the requests and the for information that we get from our clients
0: yeah so it's you, you do see it, and you have to—you have to really take a step back, I think, and, and try and think outside the box. So, you know, I've had examples of cases where, you know, there's been allegations of sexual harassment, and they don't. When you delve into it in a bit more detail and you look at the other facts surrounding that, then you might reach a conclusion that it's not likely to have happened, or it has. So, for example, I've had cases whereby, you know, an individual alleged to have been harassed by somebody, and then they might have sent them a birthday card afterwards with a kiss on the bottom, and. You know, you know, is that the sort of thing you would send to somebody that's harassed you? For example, would you have, you know, quite detailed conversations with somebody afterwards if they allege to have harassed you, or, you know, you might be looking at evidence to the text message that's gone shortly afterwards to say, um, you know, something's happened at work, I'm I'm in a real quandary as to what to do next type thing, Mm. which might be supportive of of, of something actually happening. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to try and tease that evidence out as an investigator. And if you're advising people in that situation, then it's, it's important to to try and work out whether there is any external evidence that might help the investigator reach a conclusion.
1: And do you also advise clients about the power differential? I'm thinking about a situation where if we're still talking about harassment, for example, you've got a junior member of staff who accuses her line manager of sexual harassment. Um, obviously, in those circumstances, it's going to be quite difficult for her to both, you know, maybe articulate articulate the sort of got. Or, or him, George. Or him. Yeah, true, true. He works the other way around <laughs> as
0: well. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you need to think about these things quite carefully. And so for example, that that balance of power might be a possible explanation as to why somebody hasn't acted quickly in reporting it, for example. It might make it more difficult if there is a big imbalance, you know, are they likely to be believed, for example, without any sort of real evidence to to back it up, you know, to avoid mm-hmm. the he said, she said situation. So Yes, absolutely. Um, I think what I would do really is encourage people to take a bit of a step back. You know, so, for example, you might say, well, what is the individual's motive in bringing this to somebody's attention? If they're, for example, not the one that's actually been harassed themselves, you know, is it, you know, do they have do they have an axe to grind or is there something kicking around that might, you know, provide an explanation as to why somebody's made up something, for example. So, I think there's quite a few things you need to, to look at quite carefully, and I think taking a step back to try and putting together almost like a matrix of the evidence you've got to try and reach a conclusion. Do you yeah. know what? Sometimes, Joe, you can't actually reach one. So, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing sometimes.
1: I was going to ask you about that, actually. Um, you know, what would happen if you can't find any corroborative evidence or you're not convinced by any that's been provided? You know, do is is there an option to give someone the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, well, I think you might have to do that sometimes. So <clears throat> I
0: think the, the basic rule is you're not obliged to believe one employee and disbelieve another. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is acceptable and you quite often see grievances, for example, where you say, well, OK, um, you've said this, the individual said this. And actually, there is no um, external evidence to, to either support or uh, contradict the version of events. So we're not able to take this matter further without any further evidence there's nothing inherently wrong with that, really. Um, and I think sometimes it is quite important to give
1: people the benefit of the doubt. I was going to ask, in relation to that, what about if the employee is accused of something that suggests they it might be dangerous, for example, to give them the benefit of the doubt? Um, and I'm thinking about teachers that are accused of inappropriate contact with pupils or health professionals accused of mistreating a patient. So, you know, issues like that that have potentially have very serious consequences.
0: Yeah, but serious consequences both ways, Joe. So um, Mm. I think, you know, the reality is that, yes, it can have a serious impact. You might be putting somebody who's accused of something. Uh, in front of a group of school children for example with the risk that it might happen again or but equally you know the consequences are pretty severe if you dismiss people in those circumstances so teachers get put on list 99 for example where they might be barred from being able to teach you know, lawyers might get struck off by the SRA, for example. So you do need to think very carefully about these types of situations. And there is actually court of appeal authority on this type of type of thing. So about giving the benefit of doubt to people if the evidence isn't clear. There's a case that involved a registered nurse who was recruited to work in the NHS from Singapore. And after four years service, she was working with a healthcare assistant called Keeley, who only had four months service. Well, Keely had complained that Ruby, in this case, the experienced nurse, had ill treated a patient and she was suspended following an inve- pending investigation. She was told on suspension that serious complaints had been made. A senior nurse, Petra, carried out the investigation. And she interviewed Keely and she interviewed uh, Ruby, as well as other people. And initially, um, Ruby's recollection of the incident was quite inconsistent and vague, which would be suggestive that, that perhaps this did happen whereas Keeley's was more consistent and precise and the recommendation was made that she that the matter proceeded to a disciplinary hearing uh, and that then took place with copies of statements given to the individual and you know in the usual way and stuff and she was dismissed summarily on the grounds of gross misconduct and the dismissal letter set out a number of factors, six of which were said to constitute gross misconduct and th- th- these were that she threw a cleaning wipe that landed on the patient's uh, face, okay. she claimed that the outcome wasn't intended but in effect, that she it was accidental,
1: but she didn't the, deny it happened.
0: No, no, she she accepted that she'd done it, but she didn't mean it to land on the patient's face. Mm-hmm. She said that there was a tapping on the patient's foot with a saturation probe which, with increasing force, and she also said that she slapped the patient's hand. And again, she this was denied, but she didn't offer any explanation as to why this had been said. The allegation was made that she made an abusive gesture, sort of a V sign, if you like, to the patient, laughed in her face. She And the, the defence to that was that she she made a similar hand gesture to signify peace, didn't mean to offend the uh, patient. And then in some of these, there was some evidence that, well, the allegation was that she looked around to check if, if, her, if her actions were being de- uh, observed. And that was denied by the individual in question. And then there was also a reference to an earlier incident where she behaved inappropriate to the uh, patient, but the individual hadn't felt confident to report it at the time. Now, in, in this case, the, the the claimant appealed against the dismissal, and she accepted that she, she'd done that allegation about the cleaning wipes, but denied everything else. And one of the things that she actually said was that, look, there's a side room here where the patient would not typically have had the door open, and the window would be covered by closed blinds. So therefore, the individual that was alleged to have witnessed this stuff wouldn't have actually been able to see these things if indeed they happened. So in the case itself, the appeal took the form of a full rehearing with all the witnesses giving evidence, again, before a decision was made on that appeal. And the outcome uh, essentially in that case was that the um, dismissal was upheld. But you know, it had real serious consequences for that individual Ruby. She she not only lost her job, but she also actually lost her work permit and the right to remain in the UK and was right. obviously subject to a criminal investigation by the police, which which um, she was ultimately acquitted from. So the mm-hmm. the claim was brought by her as to whether that dismissal was fair or unfair. In actual fact, the, um, the Court of Appeal decided in that particular case that the dismissal was unfair. And one of the big focuses for the Court of Appeal in that case was the was the other evidence that was sort of seemingly ignored or sort of sidelined, if you like, that was supportive of the defence rather than the prosecution, for want of a better phrase. And that was the employer didn't really investigate those contested facts and look for evidence to sort of escalate that, if you like, they only really concentrated on the evidence that she was guilty. So it it is really important to look at both sides of the story. Now, on the one hand, you would think, well, what has Keely got to gain by putting forward that sort of version of events there's no axe to grind from her or you know in relation to this particular individual she's presumably just bringing serious concerns to the attention and management but the the, the investigator just sort of ignored the other stuff you know like right. was the door open were the blinds open what was her line of sight into the room you know none of those questions were really asked and I think it is important to really um consider those type of factors when you are doing investigations because yeah the consequences in this case were massive you know it really blighted this individual's career and led to deportation to a country of origin now in actual fact the tribunal made a fairly significant reduction for contributory fault for the for the allegation that she did admit to in relation to the cleaning and wipes and but ultimately the dismissal was unfair
1: yeah okay so in that in that case then the um investigator just looked for evidence in one direction by the sounds of it yeah okay so do employers have to go through a more thorough investigation if, like the case you've just mentioned, the outcome could result in that individual being unable to continue in their chosen career. So, I'm thinking about professionals who are subject to regulatory oversight, so medical professionals, teachers, solicitors, accountants, all of those sorts of people.
0: Well, look, it's the same legal test, um, but so there's no you know, higher bar as such um, for those types of professionals, but the tribunals will expect a thorough and more detailed investigation where somebody's livelihoods is at stake. Yeah. So you've got to look for the evidence that supports the allegations and those that support the accused versions of events as well. Mm. And quite often where you see it, Joey, is you, you see it in situations whereby there's somebody has to be struck off, for example, or uh, an incident has to re- be reported to certain bodies and, yeah. and, Quite often, tribunals will criticise investigators for being too conscious of, of, of that issue and almost having the issue decided for them. So they'll expect the, the employer to make an actual decision based on the evidence before them rather than thinking, well, actually, my regulator is going to strike this person off, for example. So you do have to be careful, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. What advice do you have for employers whose employees behaviour is being investigated by the police? Do they have to just sit tight and wait for a decision to be made about whether the police are going to charge them? And if they're charged, do they have to wait for the outcome of the trial, which could take months, if not years, given the severe delays we've got to our trial processes at the moment?
0: Yeah. So um, the, the basic answer to that is no. Okay. So in terms of whether you have to wait, But quite often what happens when there's a police investigation, and it often happens with sort of sexual assault type cases, particularly involving children, is the police say, we don't want you as an employer to investigate this because it might prejudice a criminal trial or a criminal investigation. Now, there's nothing to prevent the employer from continuing with that investigation, quite frankly. but quite often the police don't want you to do that because it does have the risk of, of really um impeding that or in some way influencing that police investigation. And what you'll often find, Joe, is you'll say you'll find an employee that comes along to a disciplinary hearing or, uh, or refuses to come along and says, Well, I can't actually answer any questions that you're asking of me. Okay, because it might it might prejudice my criminal trial. Now, mm-hmm. in those circumstances, employers should make it clear to the individual, well, look, you might have, the employer might need to make a decision based on the evidence before them. Okay. And they will take into account that representation. It doesn't mean that they are, it means that they're guilty or anything like that. It just means they're going to have to consider it quite carefully. And quite often you would say, for example, well, look, we asked you various questions and you accept that you've been, you know, arrested by the police or you're on bail or whatever. And, you know, and there's sort of a bit of an argument about no smoke without fire, but, you know, it doesn't you, you can't really jump to that conclusion or be might be a factor when combined with other evidence that might make you believe that the the incidents happened rather than it hasn't.
1: It Um, sort of puts employers between a rock and a hard place, doesn't it? Really difficult situation. They're they're suspending on full pay. And if you take, for example, the situation, you know, the position of a teacher, let's say for argument's sake, it takes 18 months for that teacher to a case to come to trial. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Because not only are the school having to pay out their salary, they're also going to have to employ somebody else to cover the class whilst they're away. And in times where, you know, schools and colleges in particular have got really uh, low budgets. It, it's it's almost impossible.
0: Well, and the and the question you sometimes get asked is whether you can suspend them without pay, and the answer to that is pretty much no. So, and yeah. um, yeah. I think I think there's a real difficult situation there. And um, but it it's sort of one that you have to take on the chin. But like I said, then there isn't an absolute bar to pressing on. With the investigation, mm. it just there's some practical issues around the level of engagement from the individual nine times out of ten, and I think I think that becomes really really tricky.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well let's move on to a different point. There's no legal right to be accompanied at investigation meetings, as we know. But are there any circumstances where you would advise an employer to relax that rule and allow someone to bring in um, someone to accompany them? <laughs>
0: Um, yes. Um, so you're absolutely right that the legal right to be accompanied only only applies to disciplinary and grievance meetings, and that's the Employment Relations Act, Section 10. But for, take, for example, uh, an individual that's suffering from a disability it might be a reasonable adjustment to allow them to be accompanied at an investigation meeting. So those are the sort of things where you might do that. It might obviously stand you in good benefit as well, in good stead. If you allow somebody to be accompanied anywhere, you know, in the eyes of the tribunal, that might be helpful. And mm. um, So, it, it, you know, it, it's a very stressful time, but remember what that person's there to do. They're not there to answer questions on behalf of somebody. They're there to effectively, um, you know, ask questions, summarise things, if uh, and, and they can express an opinion if an, if an opinion's ex- been expressed to them. So, I think in those circumstances, it might actually be helpful to have to allow uh, that right of uh, accompaniment, if you like, And but yeah, it, it it will be fairly limited situations. And I think you'd think very carefully about who you let in. So, for yeah. example, the, the letting somebody like me in, in a solicitor, um, might be one thing, but letting, say, a family member support somebody in fairly difficult circumstances might be a slightly lesser way of um, achieving a similar aim, really.
1: Mm. I always think that when you're talking about people that are quite young um, it, it's sometimes really helpful to um, relax that role because they are often really nervous about these things they've never encountered anything like that before they've not been in work very long often and I think to sort of you know put a strict ban on it and it say, well, the law doesn't require you to, uh, as to allow you to be accompanied, can be quite unfair. I mean, it's not unlawful. There's, you know, there's nothing anybody can do about it. But I just think, as you say, there are circumstances where just as a matter of, you know, common fairness, it, it would, it's helpful to, to be a bit more flexible. I
0: think my advice would be to take a step back, you know, Look at what the the reason for somebody to be accompanied at at an investigation meeting. I mean, remember, quite often at an investigation meeting, you won't even have any notice that it's going to take place. It'll be, Joe, I want to have a call with you on Tuesday at 2 o'clock just to discuss a few things. Then all of a sudden you'll be bombarded with questions. So you do need to be a bit careful about some of this stuff, particularly where there's things like disability discrimination potentially kicking around and, you know, ambushing people isn't always the best approach. You know, so you do need to be a little bit um, savvy to those types of issues.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think ambushing people is rarely the right approach. Is it? If they are put
0: on notice of an investigation, okay, they may shut up shop in terms of giving a view on certain things, and it might be actually, or or you take just taking a normal situation, it might be that somebody goes off with workplace stress, for example. Mm. So, being physically in employment and answering and asking. Questions and having the ability to have them answered might actually be really helpful. So you might need to think about the circumstances around what you tell somebody before an investigation meeting in order to ensure that you get some answers to questions. Because if you think that the individual is likely to go off from workplace stress, for example, and it's very relatively easy to get a doctor to sign somebody off under those circumstances, yeah. it, it might be that you, you you sort of need to ambush them to get some answers to the questions that you you want to ask.
1: Fair enough. That was very helpful. Thank you very much. It's OK. I'm going to give you, I'm going to post some questions or two questions at you. And these are, um, I'm going to ask you to determine whether a tribunal ruled that the investigation in question was fair or not. Right. So should we start with the first one?
0: Uh, well, I'm slightly <laughs> hesitant, but yeah, go on.
1: <laughs> You'll be fine. Right. So the first one involved a cashier in a betting shop. a routine audit they identified there was some cash inconsistencies and the computer system identified that the problems occurred when this cashier had processed payments they had some footage and that showed that there were no customers at the at the counter at the time where this cashier was supposed to be paying and winnings to customers She was shown the footage and she explained that she had given the customers their winnings at a different time but her employer didn't believe her and she was dismissed for stealing. Now during the tribunal hearing it turned out that the footage was not synchronised with the computer records and the question arose should the employer have viewed five hours of tape to see whether what she was saying was true?
0: Well I think For the sake of five hours and somebody's livelihood, I think the answer to that is probably they should have looked at the tape because if the time discrepancy was quite significant between the till record and the CCTV, then I think, yes, I would definitely look at the, the rest of the tape.
1: Bingo. Well done.
0: Oh, (laughs) well,
1: that case actually went to the EAT. It was a case involving William Hill, the bookmakers, and they basically said that it wouldn't have taken the employer long or incurred additional expense to have gone through the whole footage in order to ascertain whether or not she was telling the truth. So well done. So next one. So, this involved an employee who was entitled to claim mileage allowance for their travel. And during a routine audit, they found that he had overclaimed mileage over a three month period. And at the disciplinary hearing, he explained that the higher claims were due to roadworks, closures, one way streets, parking difficulties, and a number of other things. Now, the employer did assess. Some of his claims against some examples. I mean, I think he had hundreds of mileage claims, and they didn't—they didn't look at each one. They selected um, some examples, found out that his explanations didn't tally with what they found out, and he was then dismissed for gross misconduct. Now, the employee claimed that their employer should have examined each of his expenses claims um, in order to determine whether or not he had overclaimed on all of them. What do you think? Was the investigation fair or unfair?
0: Yeah, I think it's different in this situation, so i I don't think they have to go through each and every single one to determine whether, in that example, they've got it right or wrong. I think providing that there is some evidence of reasonableness in terms of looking at the explanation, doing things like checks on like things like a road watch or whatever, then I think that's sufficient. And I, I, I've had case, I've had a case like this before where a guy was overclaiming mileage, and I um, it was a case in Scotland where I cross-examined this guy in many ways to get from point A to B, and he was sort of saying, "Well, I was going via, you know, I was going from A to B via C and D, for example," mm-hmm. and he didn't he didn't tally up when we really now, focus down on some of that stuff, but I don't think I would have had to have gone through each and every single circumstance in order to prove that the, that the employer there had done a reasonable investigation. So I'm going to say that one's okay.
1: And you're right. And, well, they, and, that, and that case actually went to the Court of Appeal, and um, they made it very clear that it's unnecessary for an employer to investigate every incident if they've got enough evidence as it is to dismiss someone for gross misconduct. That-
0: and I think, that's, I think that's the key though, isn't it? To check whether there's sufficient there already because quite often in these types of cases and in disciplinaries generally I find em- employers want to sort of use the whole kitchen sink approach really. And so 10 allegations rather than two. And I think actually sometimes the other eight that are relatively spurious or whatever just damage the two that might actually be quite good. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to really focus on the ones that you have got sufficient evidence of, or indeed put them forward and then reach a conclusion that actually you're not going to take them forward for, for a disciplinary sanction purpose because there isn't sufficient evidence or whatever, or you believe what the employer employee says. So I think it's important as an employer to really step back and say, right, okay, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? And I think those that throw the kitchen sink in, I think run the risk of damaging the otherwise good allegations.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they they don't always then make findings in relation to each of them, do they? That's the problem.
0: Yeah, and I think look from a from a point of view of balance, look, look, put yourself in the employment tribunals' shoes. If there's an allegation from the employee, for example, that you, you know this is all a fit up because they want somebody out because they want to save a redundancy payment, for example, you know that becomes a much stronger argument, does it not? If you throw the kitchen sink out, it, whereas if actually you say, well. Do you know what, we had a really good employee and absent this horrific act of gross misconduct, we wouldn't want them to lose them. You know, that's that's a much more compelling argument for, a, for an employer in my view. So you do need to take a step back really and try and work out what you're trying to achieve and think about fairness both ways. Yeah.
1: Well, it, it seems to me that the theme of this um, podcast today has been take a step back. That's something that you've mentioned on lots of occasions. So I think if um, our listeners take anything from that, it's to, you know, look at things objectively isn't it not just sort of rush in um Definitely. and make a decision
0: and i think the other th- big thing for me to take from today is that i've redeemed myself on the basis of the last podcast <laughs> where i got the answer wrong
1: you have 100 percent now i'll have to try better i'll have to try harder next time
0: to right, catch well, you out on, on that note i think that's all for today And if you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary, then tune in a fortnight. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye.